as we um, approach Easter, we are doing these uh, three mornings on the cross on Christ and him crucified. And um, Rachel started for us last week and gave that great word. And I'm going to be sharing with you this week. And then Paul will be sharing with you next week. Many people are confused about the meaning and the purpose of the cross. And why, why has this Roman tool of execution become central to the message of Christianity? Why is it so crucial? The word crucial comes from the same word as crucifix and cruciform and crucify. Why is it the crux of what we believe, the same word form, the very center of Christianity? Why? And sometimes we know the answer to that if we've been raised in church, if we've been around church a little while. We know that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us, to save us. But even that, I was talking to my children one day and they've grown up in church and they still ask the question, my son still asks the question, but why? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why couldn't God just forgive everyone? Why couldn't he just wipe the slate clean? Why did God have to come down and be nailed to a cross? Why? And why this bloody cross? Why the crucifixion? I can hear music. It's my iPad. <laughs> Playing a song. That's so bizarre. I thought I'm, I thought I'm going crazy here. Hearing voices. Why did Paul say, this is the essence of our message? Our gospel, our good news, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if, ever, if you remember that from a different era, Douglas Adams looks for a solution to the world's problems that avoid the cost and scandal of the cross. He says in his book, no one should have to get nailed to anything. Many people have been seeking crossless cures for centuries, but Paul, again and again, in his preaching and his teaching and his writing of letters to the churches, he comes back again and again to the cross, to Christ and him crucified. Malcolm Muggeridge was a, um, a journalist, a writer, an editor of the Daily Telegraph, Cambridge educated, dabbled with communism in his early years, decided that wasn't for him, and later converted to Christianity. But he was uneasy at what he saw in certain church circles of what he saw as socialist Sunday schools, kind of get-together of good, do-gooder people doing good deeds with a, what he described as a kind of an agnosticism sweetened by hymns. And uh, he wrote the following words. He said, I, I would catch a glimpse of the cross, not necessarily a crucifix, 
Maybe two pieces of wood accidentally nailed together on a telegraph pole, for instance, and suddenly my heart would stand still. In an instinctive and intuitive way, I understood that something more important, more tumultuous, more passionate was of issue than our good causes, however admirable they might be. And Paul, this great theologian, this prolific writer, this great missionary, this well-educated man, focused on the centrality of the cross to his message. As for me, he said, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Corinthians, he said those words as he described to the Corinthian believers. He said, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we look at the cross this morning, I want to focus on three things. I want to look at the purpose of the cross. Why? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Then I want to talk about the power of the cross and what Jesus achieves through his death on the cross And then I want to talk about the peace of the cross, that we can come and find peace with God through what Jesus did for us on the cross. The purpose of the cross. There was and there is a divine purpose for Jesus' death on the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. This was no random event that took place back in the day when political powers shifted and when religious leaders plotted and when Judas betrayed with a kiss It's not like any of this caught Jesus by surprise. On the day of um, Pentecost, Peter was addressing a large crowd of people, and he said this word, uh, these words as he described this moment. He said, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. In 1 Peter 1 verse 20 in the message version, we read these words written by Peter, and this was no afterthought. Even though it was only lately, at the end of the ages, became public knowledge, God always knew that he was going to do this for you. Jesus knew why he was here on earth. Several times as we go through the Gospels, particularly as we look through Mark's Gospel, several times he takes his disciples aside and he tells them that he is heading for the cross. He then began to teach them, Mark 8 verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. There were no cryptic messages here, no parables, no stories, no hidden meanings. He spoke plainly about this, the Bible says, to his disciples. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew it was in the purpose and foreknowledge of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He knew that he had been born to die. And he told his disciples as the time approached that this was what was going to happen. The cross stands at the very centre of God's plans and purposes for humankind and it is central and pivotal and essential to the purpose and plan of God for our lives. What is the point of the cross? Well, first of all, Jesus died on the cross to carry away our sins. When uh, John 
saw Jesus walking along, he pointed to him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you ever, do you ever hate to admit that you are wrong? Or da- do you ever downplay your failings or your wrongdoings? I suggest that you do. Because I know I do, and I know we all do. And I know that we've got, as Rachel reminded us last week, an ability to see in other people the things they do wrong. And, but in ourselves, we like to downplay some of our idiosyncrasies, our peccadillos, our kind of white lies, the things that we've done wrong. And none of us like to admit that we are wrongdoers or that we've messed up. We sometimes hate to say the words, I'm sorry. In the movie Planes, Trains and Automobiles, if you remember that, John Candy and Steve Martin play two unlikely travel companions who are trying to get home for Thanksgiving and everything goes wrong in this journey, this comedic journey to try and get home in time for Thanksgiving. Hence their attempts via planes, trains and automobiles to make it home. And in one scene, Candy, John Candy, inadvertently sets his car on fire with a cigarette while he's driving along and it's completely burnt to a crisp yet mechanically it continues to move and so the next scene they're driving along the highway Steve Martin and John Candy in a smoking wreck that barely is moving or recognisable and the traffic police drive up and pull them over and walk up to the driver and say do you feel that this vehicle is safe for highway travel? And Candy replies, yes, I do. It's not pretty, but it will get us to where we want to go. And the officer is not impressed. And he says, your vehicle is going to be impounded. And often when we come to our own lives, we lack a true true sense of self-awareness as we drive along in in just what a wreck we are. And God asks us, do you feel that you're fit for heaven? And many answer, yes, I really do. I think I'll get there in the end. And God says, and the gospel says, I'm sorry, but you're impounded. (laughs) You're not going to make it in this wreck of a car. And I've often asked and uh, helped us to imagine, imagine that your, your list, your inventory of sins was put upon the screen Star Wars style, that kind of font, if it just kind of started spanning down from the very moment you were born to today, if our sins were listed, if if our wrongdoings, even the best of us, the best behaved of us, the best churchgoer amongst us, if our sins were listed, none of us would want to see them or for them to be seen. How would we do on the seven deadly ones, on lust or gluttony or greed? or sloth, or wrath, or envy, or pride. And so the Bible asks the question, the psalmist asks the question, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? That is what you call a rhetorical question. Because I think we all know the answer. Who could stand in the presence of a holy and a righteous God if God kept a record of our sins. And so the Bible tells us, if we're looking at why Jesus died, he personally carried away our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You have been healed by his wounds. In the Old Testament, there was a precursor, a a kind of a, a sign of what would happen in Jesus Christ. And last week, Rachel talked about these Old Testament sacrifices and the the sacrificing of the blood and and the cleansing of sin through the lifeblood of an animal, a life for a life. And and this kind of cycle carried on for the people of Israel for many years. One of the things that happened on on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, was that um, the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice, first of all, a bull for his own sins, a life for his life to even be able to approach a holy God. And he then had to take two goats. And after taking lots, he sacrificed one of the goats for the sins of all the people of Israel. And the second goat had a scarlet cord which was wrapped around its neck, and it was called a scapegoat. And in Leviticus 16, we read about this practice that when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and all of their sins and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And this was a picture, this scapegoat, that carried away the sins of the people every year after the sacrifices were made, the blood was poured out. Every year, the scapegoat, the scarlet cord, taken outside of the town, outside of the city, into the wilderness, and carrying away the sins of the people. And this is what Jesus did for us. This is what the Bible says he did. All of this was pointing towards the perfect sacrifice where the scapegoat would be taken outside of the city and hung up on a cross and carry away the sins of the people. He took my sins and my sorrows. We sing this old hymn. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. Jesus carried away our sins, my sins that would be listed on this screen, it would take a very, very long time to read, and your sins and all of our sins, they were placed on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus carried that sin away to the cross. The second reason that Jesus died was to redeem us. Redemption is not a word that we really use very much these days, but it was very common parlance in the days of the Bible and in Greek, Greco-Roman kind of culture. But we don't really use redemption language unless you're in Christian circles and we talk about being redeemed. But we may speak of redeeming a mortgage, paying it off, but it's not really common parlance for us today. But it was very common and very commonly known and accepted in the days of uh, the early days of, this, of the Bible. Sometimes in the ancient world, if you got into economic difficulties, there were no bankruptcy laws to help you out or to kind of give you a fire break or to protect you. Instead, you would have to sell yourself or maybe your whole family into slavery to pay for your debt. You would sell yourself 
into slavery to pay for what you could not pay because you were bankrupt. And this was, in essence, um, your payment into slavery. And one of the ways, and one of the only ways out of this condition of, of being uh, enslaved um, was if someone, a wealthy friend or relative perhaps from another village, would come and pay a redemption fee for you to set you free from slavery. It was in essence the payment of a ransom for your life. The translation of the Greek word ransom, it comes from lutron. It means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. And Jesus came, the Bible says, to redeem us from the slavery of sin, from the slavery of wrongdoing, to pay that kind of ransom in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with his precious life blood, of the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Philip Yancey tells the story, redemption stories, of lives that seem beyond redemption, beyond saving. He speaks of Juanita, who was a prostitute, and she was sold into sexual slavery by her own mother at the age of four. And while other children went to school, she worked in a brothel, earning for her mother the higher rates that were paid for young girls. And eventually, Juanita had two girls of her own, two children of her own, whom her mother took from her. And with no education and no other skills, she continued working in the brothel. And in the process, she became addicted to alcohol and cocaine. And one day, a customer grew enraged with Juanita when she wouldn't do what he asked her to do. And so he hit her over the head with a baseball bat. And she lay in a hospital bed, and she was desperate. She said, I got on my knees. I pled with God. I wanted someone and somehow to escape prostitution, to become a real mother to my children. And God gave me a vision, and he said, look for Rahab Foundation. I didn't even know the word Rahab. She found the organization's phone number, though. And a few days later, Juanita showed up, bruised and bandaged at Rahab's door. I need help, she said, sobbing. I'm dying. I can't take it anymore. A kindly woman named Mariliana took her in and told her about God's love. I couldn't believe the hope on Mariliana's face, Juanita recalled. She smiled. She hugged me. She gave me a clean bed. She put flowers in my room and a promise that no men would harass me. And she taught me how to be a real mother and now I'm studying a trade to live for the glory of God. Dallas Willard says, for those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. There is no one that is beyond redemption. There is no one that cannot be bought back. And Jesus paid such a price, the price of his own life. We used to sing, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. 
the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we used to sing when I was a child, I am redeemed. <laughs> I am redeemed. I will sing it all and all. I am redeemed, oh praise the Lord, redeemed forevermore. Jesus came to redeem us. And we were bankrupt. And we were enslaved to sin. And that is everybody's state without God. And Jesus said, I will pay the price to set you free. I will redeem you. And in that sense, he offered his life for ours. Jesus came to offer his life for ours. The job of the high priest in the Old Testament was to offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. An animal was slaughtered. A sacrifice was made to atone for the sins of the people. But unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every day before he can get around to us and our sins. He has done it once and for all. He has offered up himself as the sacrifice. This is not some third party being punished. This is what John Stock calls the self-substitution of God. This is God offering himself in our place. Many of you will have heard of the story of Maximilian Kolbe. It's a, it's a well-told story in church circles. But for those of you who have not heard it, on 31st of July, 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz, and 10 men were chosen to die as a punishment by the Nazis. And Franciszek Gachanowczek was one of those men that was chosen to die. And as he was picked out of the crowd, he cried out, my poor wife, my poor children. And a 47-year-old Polish priest called Maximilian Kolbe spoke out and said that he was willing to step in in his place and to take the place of the condemned man. And on the 14th of August, 1941, he died at the hands of the Nazi guards injected with carbolic acid. He had died in the place of this man. And Jesus died in our place. He endured crucifixion for us, a death which Cicero called the most cruel and hideous of tortures. Jesus was stripped and tied to a whipping post. He was flogged with four or five thongs of leather interwoven with sharp, jagged bone and lead. Eusebius, the third century historian, described Roman flogging in these terms. He said the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. He was then taken to the Praetorian where a crown of thorns was thrust on his head. He was forced to carry a heavy crossbar on his bleeding shoulders until he collapsed. And when they reached the site of crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six-inch nails were driven into his forearms and just above the wrist. And his knees were then twisted sideways so the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. And he was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. And there he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. Yet the New Testament does not concentrate on the physical or the emotional pain of Jesus. What was unique was the spiritual suffering that he experienced in our place. He was cut off from his heavenly Father 
as the curse of sin, your sin and my sin was placed on him. And so Paul reminds the Romans when he writes to them, he says, it's very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, a Maximilian Kolbe of this world. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't want to know him, when we didn't call on his name, when we would have been in the crowd spitting on him or jeering or crying crucify him, we own that as humanity that he came and we recognized him not and we didn't give him the honor and the glory he deserved because he came to offer his life for us, to take our place. He came to take the death that should have come to us, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He came to save us and he came to set us free. The mission film The Mission tells the story of a Jesuit priest called Gabriel who is commissioned to build a mission in South America to the Guarani Indians. And on the way, Gabriel, the priest, who's on his way to these Indians, meets Mendoza, who's played in the film by Robert De Niro. He's a mercenary who has been a slave trader. And his slaves have included the Guarani Indians that this priest is on his way to. And Mendoza, Robert De Niro, is trapped in a prison of guilt and regret because he has killed his brother in a jealous rage. And Gabriel attempts to persuade this guilt-stricken man to accompany him to the Guarani village where he has committed so many of his crimes. There is a way out, Mendoza, Gabriel says to this sinner, this guilt-ridden man. God gave us the burden of freedom. You chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare to do that? And Mendoza says, there is no penance that is hard enough for me. But do you dare to try it? Do I dare? Do you dare to see it fail? And as they begin this arduous journey, the priest straps a huge sack of armor onto Mendoza's back. And to reach the village, the men must travel over cliffs and waterfalls. And you follow the scene after scene of him struggling with this load of weight on his back. The journey is almost impossible, but for someone with 100 pounds of armor strapped to their back, it's barely doable. And they finally reach their destination, and the Indians are excited to see Gabriel the priest. But as they recognize Mendoza, it becomes a moment of truth. One of the Indian men unsheaths a knife and holds it to Mendoza's neck. And Mendoza remains calm, and he's ready to receive the punishment that he deserves for his sins. And then in an unexpected portrait of grace, the Indian removes the knife from Mendoza's throat and he cuts the pack of armor free that is on his back. And they all watch it as it falls from the slave trader's back and clanks down the mountainside into a ravine below. Mendoza, shocked and confused, begins to sob uncontrollably and clings to the Indian man's feet in contrition. For the Son of Man, we read in the Bible, came to seek and save that which was lost. 
Paul said, I am still preaching salvation through the cross of Christ alone. We all have stuff on our backs. We all carry guilt around with us. We all of us are sinners. We all of us are driving in burnt-out wrecks. We all of us deserve death and justice and punishment and ultimately hell. But Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for those that have got it all together. I came for the sick. I came for the sinner. I came for the person with guilt on their back. I came for the wrongdoer. I came for the estranged, for the outsider. I came for the one who's messed up, who's missed the target, who's fallen short. I came for the one who carries shame around them, with them every day like a massive sack of armor on their back. He came, the Bible says, again and again. He came to save us. He came to set us free. And no one is beyond his redemption. In his book, Love Beyond Reason, John Ortberg describes the fact that we are all ragged dolls. He talks about this old ragged doll that his daughter had as a child. And it had eyes missing and it had stuffing coming out of its arms. And it was just an old ragged doll, but it was loved. And we are all ragged dolls, John Ortberg says. We are all of us in need of the love of a saviour. And then he speaks of Al. Al was a ragged doll. And Al's ragged edge ran towards the bottle. He was an alcoholic, as were his father, his uncle, and his brother, and not the sloppy kind. He didn't miss work or he didn't throw away his money, but it did make him hard to get to know. And Nancy always knew her dad loved her, but it was in his own way, a ragged way. He never said it outright. And sometimes if she told him she loved him over the phone, he might say, me too, punk. But he never volunteered it. And one fall, his skin turned yellow and the shade of an overripe banana and the doctors told him they wanted to test him for pancreatic cancer, which at the time was virtually always terminal. We were waiting at his house for him to come home with the test results. Got it were his first words when he came in the door. He didn't say much more about it, and sometimes you would see him staring out the window, but it was hard to know what he was thinking. He had never been very concerned about God one way or the other. He wasn't particularly hostile, just casually disinterested. We tried to talk with him now, but didn't get far. Until one day when my mother was visiting, she talked to Al about how they shared the same grandchildren, about how life was unpredictable, and maybe she would go first, but if Al should die, and the grandkids should ask someday about him and God, what should she tell them? How did it stand between Al and God? Fine, he said, everything's fine with God and me, why shouldn't it be? She pressed further and explained about how God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and the light dawned and the ice melted and Al prayed and gave his life to God and God began some 
constructive surgery, reconstructive surgery. And Al and I, John Ortberg says, began to read together from the Gospel of John and he would study some on his own and then we'd talk about it and generally pray after. And once or twice we even prayed holding hands. One day when the cancer was quite advanced, I was lying in our bed too weak and emaciated to sit up and we'd finished talking about Jesus. Now let's pray, Al said which was striking because he hadn't often initiated prayer before. Okay, and let's do that hand thing, Al said. He reached over and grabbed my hand. And it struck me that the hand that had spent a lifetime throwing footballs and swinging golf clubs and casting and shooting and lifting countless cans of beer was more beautiful in weakness than it had ever been in its strength. And not long after that, Al went into the hospital and on a Friday night, he called for Nancy and they talked for a while. And then before Nancy hung up the phone, I heard her say one of the few phrases that I will remember as long as I live. I love you too, Dad, she said. I asked her if that meant what I thought it did. Yes, her dad said he loved her. That was on a Friday night. The next morning, Al suffered a stroke, which was not uncommon given his condition and treatment. And for six weeks, He was virtually unable to speak, and then he died. The last time Nancy heard her dad speak was the first time he said, I love you. And there is a kind of love that seeks value in that which is loved. There is a kind of love that is attracted to status and wealth and beauty. We understand that love. We see it every day. But there is a kind of love that creates value in that which is loved. There is a love that takes rag dolls like Al and you and me and loves us beyond all reason. And if you let him, God will begin to do reconstructive surgery on you until one day, watch out. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The power of the cross. Jesus came to carry away our sins, to redeem us, to offer his life ours, to save us, to set us free. And that's why Paul kept coming back to the cross and kept coming back to the cross. Because he said, I know well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those people who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. Sometimes people look at the cross and they see failure, They see foolishness, they see weakness, they see shame. What they should see, says Paul, is the power and the wisdom of God. For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The power of God at work to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to defeat all principalities and powers. God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins were all taken away. The cross where Christ was crucified is a place of raw power. The power of God to save you. The power of God to forgive you. The power of God to free your life from guilt. The power of God to give you eternal life. The power of God to heal you. The power of God to give you hope and a future. And all this was displayed publicly as Christ was crucified on the cross. Which brings me to my final point for every one of us this morning is the peace of the cross. 
For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and by him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of his blood on the cross. This includes you who were once so far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has brought you back as his friends. He has done this through his death on the cross. Instead of being far from God, you can come near. You can be his friend. You can be his child. You can know peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. We sing many songs about the cross. We sing an an old hymn, Rock of Ages, and it says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. I don't know what language you use about yourself, your own life. I've used various metaphors this morning. A wrecked car, a burnt out car, a weight upon our backs, a ragged doll. We all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came to carry away your sins. He came to buy you back from slavery with his own blood. He came to offer self-substituting love, to offer his life for your life. He came to save you, seek you out individually. And every one of us can know him. We, like Al, can turn towards him and he can do reconstructive surgery in our life. In the earlier part of our service today, we were reminded that today is the day of salvation. We were reminded that we can leave behind us those grave clothes, that we can start again afresh. We were reminded that the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies are new every day. And you can come to the cross this morning and you can receive the gift of life and love and hope. I'm going to lead us all in a prayer now. This is why Paul said, all I preach when I come to you, all I preach, I preach Christ and I preach him crucified. This is the core of the gospel, the truth of the saving grace of God. And there is no one beyond his redemption. So let me lead you in prayer. Why don't you close your eyes? And if you're watching online, you can follow with us and you can pray with us wherever you are or listening to this on podcast. But today could be your day (laughs) where you turn your face toward God and you receive his love. Even while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so why don't you pray with me in your mind, in your heart, in your thoughts. Something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you died in my place so that I can live. Please will you 
carry away my sins. Please will you redeem my life. Please will you give me new life in place of death. Please will you save me. I am sorry for the things I've done wrong and I accept your gift of forgiveness, grace, salvation, redemption. Today I want to start a new life in the grace and the knowledge of God. Please forgive me, save me and set me free. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord, we thank you. Though we don't always understand the mystery of the cross, its power, its symbolism, its purpose, we thank you that in it and through it we have peace with God. We thank you, Jesus, that you came. We thank you that you died for us and that you set us free. And in view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.